Moncrief on News Talk. Okay, it's time once again to have a look at some stories from other parts of the world. Jonathan de Burke Butler uh, is on a, a bit of a break, so uh, we're joined by News Talk Stephen Murphy. Stephen, good afternoon. To afternoon, you. Sean. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Now we're going to start in Pakistan. Now I think over. The years we've uh, uh, we've covered various uh, blasphemy cases in Pakistan, and the death penalty is what you can get for it there. But this is the case of an eight-year-old boy. Yeah, that's right. So it's a Hindu boy, and he's accused of intentionally urinating on a carpet in a school housing religious text last month. Now he's the youngest person ever to be charged with blasphemy in the country, and he's being held in protective police custody. Uh, now he did appear in court last week and was granted bail, but that led to a mob attacking the temple in the town of Vong in Punjab on Wednesday uh, now they burned down the temple's main door they damaged statues as well they had iron bars and sticks with them um, so police they've already arrested at least 50 people accused of attacking the temple and they're looking for another 100 suspects and they actually had to bring in troops as well to quell any further unrest so it's, it's turned into quite the volatile situation there And are, are all these people Hindus in this particular instance? Yeah I believe so so the boy's family have actually uh, have gone into hiding uh, um, and many of the Hindu community as well in this conservative district uh, have fled their homes. Um, so the member of the boy's family, um, they're saying the boy isn't even aware of what blasphemy is mm. and he doesn't understand what his crime was. So, like, he is eight. That's a, a fair enough claim to, to make, I suppose. Yes. Now, the, the, just to be clear, he's a Hindu boy. He's accused of intentionally urinating on a carpet in a school housing religious text. This was a Hindu uh, school, was it? Or, or was it an Islamic school? Yeah, it was. A, it was a. It was a Hindu. It was a. It was a Muslim. Sorry, Muslim. Ah, right. Muslim okay. Uh, hence that he was Hindu, and ah, that's why right. they're that's they're, why they're angry, going mad about it. And so the the mob then were attacking a, a Hindu, in kind of in in retaliation. Yes, sort of I thing. believe so. Yeah. Uh, but this kind of thing happens all the time in Pakistan. It does, it? yeah. So, like, um, the boy's family are really worried now that meaningful action won't be taken about it. Um, and the head of the Pakistan Hindu Council has said more than 100 homes of Hindu communities have been empty now because they're worried, really, about um, retaliation attacks. Um, and activists saying that attacks on Hindu temples have increased in the last few years um, and th- that's showing an escalating level of extremism. And actually, in December last year, um, there was a large violent mob of mob of conservative Muslims who demolished a century-old Hindu temple in a northwestern province. So, you know, this kind of thing, it's not the first time it's happened and uh, presumably won't be the last. Did Imran Khan have anything to say about this? Yeah, so he's condemned it, the Prime Minister. Uh, he's ordered the provincial police chief to take action against anyone involved um, and that he says that the government would restore uh, the temple as well. Right, OK. I'd love to know why a Hindu boy was in a Muslim school anyway, or, or was it just was it a school and there happened to be uh, Muslim texts in there or not? Uh, that's uh, But he's eight. He probably just wet himself. Oh, God. Uh, right, Lebanon, we're going to go to next. Uh, again, uh, a story about violence, but this is over fuel shortages. Yeah, that's right. So this happened uh, yesterday. So one man was killed uh, during an argument over uh, a petrol fill-up in the, in the Daniyeh region in the north of the country. Um, so it started with a fist fight, but he actually ended up being shot and died in hospital. Um, there was a separate incident in Tripoli, uh, also over a fuel dispute. Um, there was actually a hand grenade thrown there. Um, troops were brought in at the local hospital and heavy gunfire as well um, was heard at the men's funerals. Um, so for months now, um, you know, petrol stations 
since Lebanon. They've had to ration the supply. There's been massive queues outside petrol stations. And it's it's sort of normal now for people to be waiting for over an hour just to fill up their tanks. Um, and the, the National Electricity Company as well, um, they're really dependent on imported fuel. They've had to expand a rolling blackout system. So homes and businesses, they're only getting around an hour of electricity a day at the moment. Yeah, and this is all kind of in the context of like the the, the Lebanese economy has just imploded completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really has. Like they've lost more than ninety percent of the currency value in less than two years. Um, so you know it's not just fuel; it's as I said, electricity, medicines as well. Um, and there's you know hospitals warning as well that their generators are at risk of running out of fuel. Um, that critically ill patients too could be at risk. Um, so you know causing massive, massive issues there, and it seems like it's only getting worse. Yeah, and the the the. They have the usual delays before me government as well. I think that's always the case. In yeah, I think it's well. up to 11 months now. So, oh, you know, crikey. people are getting very impatient. Yeah, because I think Lebanon was one of the few countries in the world during the 2008 financial crisis that didn't collapse because they have physical currency. They have physical gold in their banks. Uh, and so they didn't suffer. So, uh, but, you know, it can happen to any country. Right. Uh, some more good news uh, for you, particularly uh, on foot of uh, uh, what we've just been living through. Uh, tell us first, Stephen, what is Marburg disease? Yes, so this is a disease, um, it's highly infectious, it causes hemorrhagic fever, um, so it falls into the same family as the virus that causes Ebola, but it's a separate thing, if you like. Um, so the African fruit bat is the, the reservoir host of this virus, and it basically spreads from human to human through bodily fluids. So it has an average fatality rate of around 50%, but that can be as high as 88%, which is roughly similar to Ebola. Um, there, and there have been 12 major outbreaks since 1967 so most of them have been in the south and east of Africa as well as in Europe so you know if you get it you start to feel quite sick really quickly uh, you can get a high fever bad headache uh, muscle aches and pains and then it can progress onto nausea and vomiting after a few days and many patients who develop it um, die within 8 or 9 days after developing symptoms so like it's a really really nasty thing that can cause issues pretty quickly and we've just seen an outbreak Yeah, one case so far. So this is in West Africa, um, according to the World Health Organization. Um, So they are worried about the potential for this to to spread quite quickly. Um, So it's been identified in the southern area of Gwekadu, near the borders with Liberia and Ivory Coast. Um, It's actually the same district of an Ebola outbreak between 2014 and 2016, which uh, claimed the lives of over 11,000 people. So they're obviously trying to move in, contain this really quickly. Um, there's contact tracing underway at the moment. Um, so they've identified four high-risk contacts, um, including a healthcare worker, um, as well as 146 others who could be at risk. So, you know, a bit of a concern there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Uh, and Mexico, we're going to go to you next. Uh, as we all know, the Mexican drug cartels are treated appallingly by the media. So uh, they've decided to try and right that wrong. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> masked men um, claiming to represent the Jalisco New Generation, who are basically the most powerful drug cartel now in Mexico. They circulated a video yesterday where they threatened to kill a national TV news anchor. Um, So six masked men are in this video. They've got guns. 
um, you know, with them. There's another masked man sitting at a small desk in front of them. And he's saying that he's delivering a message on behalf of a guy called Ruben Oseguera Cervantes. Now, he's known as El Mencho. Um, he's one of the country's most wanted men. The US have put a, a $10 million reward for any information that will wow. lead to his capture. And their big complaint, basically, is over this uh, cable news channel called Millennio Television. And they're claiming that it's favouring so-called defence groups that are fighting the cartel in a Michoacan state. Um, now, the anchor in question is Azucena Oresti, one of the most popular anchors in the country, kind of does the equivalent of R61, the, the yeah. main news in the evening. Um, and they've threatened to kill her and make her eat her words. Um, so yeah, a really serious threat. It does have a real kind of bang of, you know, Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago watching CNN, getting a bit annoyed at the coverage he's getting. <laughs> Except that in Mexico, you know, people carry out these threats. Exactly. This is a very dangerous country for yeah. journalists. Yeah, exactly. It really is. So, you know, nine journalists were killed last year in Mexico. Um, 120 have died since 2000. And they reckon now that Mexican journalists are more likely to die than war reporters. So I think that kind of just puts into context how how bad the threat is there. Uh, Though it's interesting that now we've got to the point in Mexico that their vigilante groups are starting up to defend themselves against the cartels, you know, because there's parts of the country that are kind of pretty lawless. Yeah, so this has kind of flared up in the last couple of weeks. So members of the cartel go up against vigilante groups for control of uh, one of the regions west of Mexico City. So they're saying they've taken up arms to defend themselves against attacks from the cartel, but there have been some suspicions that they're you know, sometimes turning criminal themselves. They're not exactly, you know, (laughs) without without fault themselves. So um, yeah, Oresti, this TV anchor, interviewed one of the vigilante, um, the vigilantes a couple of weeks ago, um, and that vigilante alleged that the cartel would kill everyone in the town if they won the battle for the area so I don't know if their their big concern is that she said anything bad herself or more that maybe she just gave a platform on to that them. channel yeah. to them yeah you or an, uh, them or any, anyone to do with them uh, right so I mean as we all know that the, the Japanese Olympics uh, are, are over and I suppose people from a health point of view uh, breathe a huge sigh of relief but not yet guess where the Winter Olympics are uh, what are they doing in China yeah they're <laughs> in Beijing so just when you thought Tokyo has gotten off the hook Beijing now are in full crackdown mode, ready for the Winter Olympics. Um, so expected to kick off. Well, they are going to kick off in February next year. But um, some of the leaks already of what we could expect there, the likes of guards and biohazard suits ready to stop anyone from leaving. Um, athletes giving interviews from behind plastic walls. So they'll have a microphone and then the journalist will sort of have to... <laughs> won't be within touching distance, shall we say. Um, there'll be all-day armpit thermometers uh, that'll have tiny alarms in them, so in case someone develops a fever, this'll go off and the authority will wow. think, right, we need to go and test them or whatever. And I think they actually trialled it at a stadium in Beijing last year and they found one person with a fever. So they think this might help their efforts. Um, so yeah, as we know in Tokyo, more than 450 infections have been linked to the games. Um, they think, you know, most of those were officials in the local area and contractors working within this Olympic bubble who were going in day to day and they think that's where a lot of the cases came from. So Beijing are trying to make sure this doesn't happen. Um, so they're actually redesigning nearly all of the venues so they're going to um, divide the passageways within the venues even more they're putting in new toilets um, and they're trying to minimise any chance that the athletes would come into contact with be it journalists be it fans be it officials 
How many how many venues are we talking about? Them redesigned? Thirty nine. My gosh. So like they reckon it's you know not going to take too long, but you know redesigning thirty nine venues within six months like, not an easy task you'd imagine. And is there any indication whether there'll be spectators there or not? No, well, like it's not looking like that at the moment. And China, obviously, you know, in Beijing, putting in all these measures. But the IOC were asked about this at, you know, press conferences after the Olympics, which have just passed, and they weren't able to rule out, you know, lifting the ban on spectators. And presumably, they're thinking, listen, vaccinations are on the way by the time we get to February next year, that it might be safe enough mm. to have some fans. But you know, Beijing are saying even in the local area, they're going to have a really tightly controlled regime of measures, and you know, it's quite questionable whether there will be any fans there. Uh, what's the vaccination rate in China? Um, so 16% of people in China wow. fully vaccinated. So it's not, not I know great. It's not, I know it's a big country, but you'd have thought. You would by now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd have thought they'd be uh, further ahead of that. It's not as if, I don't think anti-vaxxers get much sauce uh, in, uh, in in Beijing, I would have thought. Uh, right, Spain we're going to go to next. And uh, uh, this is uh, about the death of a bull. Yeah, so this happened the early hours of Sunday morning. Uh, a small village called Brihuega. Um, so it's a population of around two and a half thousand. It's around kind of a hundred kilometers northeast from Madrid. Um, so a lot of the residents they went to this local bull ring to take part in what's called a concurso de recortadores. So they basically take turns jumping, twirling, moving around a bull, and the aim is to be deemed the most courageous in the ring. That's what they're the title they mm. all want. Um, so the video from the event it showed that. The last animal up, called Campanito, actually taking aim at the doors of the bull ring, managed to push his way through the first set of doors, and the second set of doors were obviously a bit flimsy. He didn't have too much trouble getting through that, and then was out onto the narrow streets of the village. So around a dozen people started chasing it, and actually the commentator in the bull ring carried on and was <laughs> was saying things like, panic in the stands, everyone has climbed higher up, which I'm not sure was, was too helpful, but yeah. he was there to do a job, and he certainly carried on doing it. Um, So two men aged uh, 64 and 73 they were injured uh, as the the bull roamed through the streets both were taken to hospital Um, one only had you know minor injuries the Mm. other's in a stable condition so they weren't seriously injured but the residents decided to get a car and drive at the bull and the video appears to show the bull going along while a car speeds up behind it and rams into it Um, so the bull sadly um, passed away and uh, Spain's police saying it's identified the driver and is working to clarify exactly what happened and no arrests though made so far. Yeah, but things like this have happened in Spain before. Are they particularly seem to be particularly controversial? Well, like animal rights groups are obviously really unhappy about this. Like they're going to court now trying to uh, get court action because they see it as animal abuse, you Mm. know, a bunch of lads are getting in a car and ramming this bull. Um, but, you know, as you say, it's not the first time it's happened. There was an incident in, you know, Valencia, I think, end of 2019. Um, the bull escaped, injured a couple of people. The police shot dead the bull. I think they shot it something like 20 times. And the organisers were fined €3,000, which isn't an awful lot. So maybe not, not a massive deterrent to holding these sorts of, sorts of events. Yeah, right. Anyway, uh, next up, uh, we're going to go to Finland. Uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, they, they reckon they found the remains of an Iron Age uh, person, but who's a non-binary person. Yeah, exactly. So this is a study in the European Journal of Archaeology. Um, so they've done this DNA analysis of remains in a late Iron Age grave at Suuntaka um, in Hatula, which is in South Finland. Um, and it may have belonged to a high-status non-binary person, apparently. Um, so it was first discovered back in 19. 
1968 they were doing building work um, and they found a grave so there was jewellery in it um, brooches and uh, wooden clothing suggesting that the person dressed in a typical feminine costume feminine mm. costume from that area but then there was also swords in the grave um, placed on the person's left side and equipment more associated with masculinity so they thought at first that there might be two bodies there you know one of a man one of a woman but they later went on to say that um, you know it was actually just one person and they had something called Klein-Felter syndrome so um, usually females they have two X chromosomes and a male has one X and one Y but this syndrome basically means that a male is born with an extra X chromosome so they're still genetically men but the condition basically means that it can cause you know things like larger breasts uh, lower sex drive and infertility Um, so they reckon that based on what is admittedly you know a small sample as they admit themselves but that it was likely the person may have identified as outside the traditional gender label. So their gender identity may well have been non-binary. How interesting. But, but presumably they were a high, came from a high status family or something. Yeah, so. they reckon so. So there was like, you know, uh, objects in this grave, um, you know, really valuable furs and objects. Um, so they reckon that, you know, it was potentially someone from a wealthier, influential family, but certainly someone high up the, the social pecking order, if right. you like. Okay, so that's maybe a factor as to why they were accepted possibly being maybe a, a, a bit different. Uh, right, so what should we look out for over the coming week then, Stephen? Yeah, so presidential elections in Zambia coming up on Thursday. I know you've mentioned that on this slot before, mm-hmm. so that'll be interesting to watch. And then on Friday, um, Sky News Australia's chief executive is due before a Senate inquiry. So there's been a lot of concern about, you know, misinformation coming for that outlet. So he's going to be up uh, before that Senate inquiry. And um, before that, they've actually quietly deleted... Um, a couple of dozen videos in recent days which questioned the public health response to COVID and uh, promoting unproven treatments as well. Right, that's so, but they've deleted them. But then they again, have, yeah. yeah, but they've deleted them, but we know they've deleted them, so that's exactly. not really going to help. I know, uh, yeah. So, like Sky News Australia, it's not your kind of cave early with the day's news, it's more kind of the GB news, you know, controversial oh, element, yeah. yeah. And getting their, yeah, their vaccine router has, has big problems, and that's yeah. due to absolute people resisting it. Stephen, thanks a million for coming into us uh, today. That was uh, News Talk Stephen Murphy there. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Moncrief on News Talk.